Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown. As always, I'm your decoder, Simon. Welcome, welcome. I'm here, one of my writers in this case, Arnaldo. Thank you, Arnaldo, has written me a script. Project Stargate, how US intelligence, oh, I know this story. How US intelligence used psychics during the Cold War. This is, I, I've made a video about this before somewhere. It's not going to be as long, as comprehensive, and as riddled with commentary as today's, but uh, I definitely know this one. Uh, the format of the show, I've never read this before. As I mentioned, Arnaldo has written it for me. I'm going to read it, we're going to decode it together, dear audience. Let's jump in. It's the winter of 1982. NATO is in turmoil. Oh, this is like Cold War times, isn't it? One of their top officers in Europe, US General da James Dozier, has been kidnapped by a cell of Marxist terrorists in northern Italy. The Red Brigades, infamous for executing their captives. I also know this story. I have the feeling, I have the feeling that Arnaldo's written an episode about, about that as well, about the Red Brigades. But I've made like thousands of videos, literally thousands. And people are always like, Simon, don't you remember doing this? And I'm like, no, how would I remember? It's thousands of videos. Do you remember all the books you've ever read? Do you remember like stuff you read in school? No, I mean, some, but mostly not. As the chilly winds of January flip the calendar's pages, Dozier's relatives and compatriots jolt every time the telephone rings. Every time they pick up the receiver, they fear hearing the voice of a terrorist, announcing in the typical deadpan style of the Red Brigades that General Dozier has been executed by a revolutionary tribunal. Oh, I hate, you know when you get a phone call and it's like, the other day, it's like my wife knew I was busy, but she is like, I, I go to the gym a few times a week and she knows like from five to six that day, I'm in the gym and like with my trainer. And so she doesn't usually ever call me like during that time because she knows I'm probably busy. And so I see the phone, I'm like, oh no, what's happened? Oh no, what is this? So I'm like, hello? And she's like, hi. And I'm like, what is it? And she's like, oh, are you at the gym? Oh, oh for God's sake. <laughs> I'm always like, oh no, what is it? Something's wrong with the kids, something like that. Or like uh, when you get a phone call from like, I don't know, one of your family members at like just the wrong time of day for no reason. You're like, what's up? <laughs> what's up? What's happening? And I've had those phone calls and it's been bad news and you're like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> but then I also have one. My dad rang me yesterday at like 10 o'clock in the morning uh, that he hangs up and I'm like, oh, thank God. It's just a mistake, wasn't it? And he's like, sorry, mistake. And I'm like, yeah, why? <laughs> The Italian police do what the police do. They round up suspects, they kick down doors, but bust terrorist cells and confiscate military-grade arsenals. Allegedly, they also conduct some intense interviews using water-based enhanced interrogation techniques. <laughs> Sounds like Arnaldo's working for the CIA. What did you do? Oh, we did uh, some rather intense interviewing. There might have been water involved. Did you waterboard? No! No, 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 no. <laughs> but the DIA, America's Defense Intelligence Agency, is not sitting idle either. Never heard of the DIA. Is that like CIA? But did this get turned into something else? But by the, it was around in the 80s. Does this still exist? Unable to conduct investigations on the ground, they've deployed one of their best assets, an operative who'll be able to locate where General Dozier is kept hidden without leaving US soil. His name is Joe McGonagall, an agent and psychic expert in remote viewing. I feel like this is the intro to a 1990s TV show. His name is Joe McGonagall, an expert, an agent in psychic viewing. Something like that. Jesus, I've missed my calling as a composer. 
Following an established procedure, McGonagall practices meditation to remove any blockages which may hamper his mental conduits. Then a colleague acting as a monitor provides information and documentation related to the target, in this case General Dozier. The information provided evokes a signal line which strikes at a cognition within McGonagall's autonomic nervous system. Well, I feel like all of these things are real. Like, well, I don't know what a signal line is, but like... Oh, Cognitron. I thought that said Cognition. Wait, is it- I don't- Okay, I take it back. I take it back. Signal Line and Cognitron. Don't know if those are real. Autonomic- Autonomic Nervous System, though. That's real, isn't it? Isn't that your breathing? It's like why you don't have to think about breathing. Um, there's that joke. I remember hearing a joke when I was a kid. And I don't know if this would cross the pond. But it was like making fun of David Beckham, who was always, you know, you'd be like, Oh, <laughs> David Beckham's a bit dumb. He seems enormously successful for someone who's apparently quite dumb, so I don't know what that's about. But it's like David Beckham goes to the, the hairdresser, the, the barbers, sorry, hairdresser, what's up? He goes to the barbers and he's wearing these headphones. And he sits down in the chair and the barber's like, can I take the headphones off? And David's like, no, 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 don't take the headphones off. And he's like, well, it's making me, qu it's quite difficult to take your hair. And David's like, don't take the headphones off. And so they're sitting in the chair. Eventually, the was like, well, i got to trim around the back. So he just takes the headphones off and uh, trimming his hair. And then David Beckham's dead. And he's just in the chair and he's dead. And the barber's like, oh, God, what happened to David Beckham? Is that, what was he listening to? And he puts on the headphones and it says, breathe in and breathe out. Breathe in. <laughs> I don't know why I remember that joke. But you could just apply it to anyone stupid. Like, whoever's in the cultural zeitgeist at the time, this was like the 90s, so I guess it was David Beckham. But whoever's in the zeitgeist at the time, who's a bit dumb, you can uh, apply that joke to them. And I'm probably getting it slightly wrong, but I always found it quite amusing. That's the atomic nervous system, everybody. Never forget. Impressions, perceptions, images start forming within the remote viewer's mind. A coastline appears, as seen from above. If a as if hovering thousands of miles away from his body, McGonagall closes in on the coast and then moves inland, identifying the area as northeastern Italy. In his own words, I moved closer to the ground and began to pick out roadways and buildings. I followed the roads and eventually found myself near a small central plaza across from some kind of fountain and picked up the smells of a butcher shop. I got an image of a very large apartment building and settled in on the second floor. Was Joe McGonagall able to find General Dozier in time with his remote viewing abilities? Who won? Eventually, who won this duel between extrasensory perception and the harsh materialism of Marxist-Leninist armed insurgents? <laughs> I don't remember, but I get the feeling it's going to be the uh, the armed insurgents, right? The Marxist-Leninists. Long time. Marxist-Leninists is like the longest name for an organization. What do you do? I am a Marxist-Leninist. Jesus, could you come up with something more catchy, like communist. Long-time fans of the Casual Criminalist should know how this story ends. Even Simon be able to pluck up some details from his Cognitrons. Uh, yeah, no, I don't remember what happens. <laughs> Was it really on Casual Criminalist that we, just, that we covered this story? Wow, okay. For everybody else, hold on tight. We'll sure find out later. For the time being, I'd like to shift our attention to the project under which McGonagall was recruited and trained. It may sound like a Stranger Thing pitched by a Netflix screenwriter, but for more than two decades, the CIA and DIA dedicated $22 million in funding to the research of remote viewing and other extrasensory capabilities, as well as their application to intelligence gathering. I'll tell you what, that's probably like 150 mil or something in today's money. Maybe not 150, maybe like 100 mil in today's money. I could think of a lot better things to do with 100 mil. You could probably buy at least one F-16 or... F-22 Raptor or something cool with that, right? 
something actually useful rather than just like having people sit in rooms and imagine shit. Obviously, I'm a little bit skeptical. <laughs> Let's see how this works out, shall we? And before we dismiss the premise altogether, whoops a daisy, <laughs> according to reputable news outlets, operatives within this program scored some notable victories. Okay, then. Let's see if I'm finally convinced about extrasensory perception. There's a button on my car. Well, maybe it's not my current car, but maybe like one of my old cars or something, which is called ESP, and it stands for obviously something to do with car stuff. And it's a button you can press. And whenever I saw it, all I thought about think about is extrasensory perception. It's like you press it and the car's like, oh, I can see ghosts. What does ESP stand for? I think there was a little picture of a tire next to it, so I never dared press it. And even a professor of statistics had to concede that the psychics hired by the DIA and CIA achieved results. He said, far beyond what is expected by chance. Okay then, let's see how this goes. So, was American intelligence on the right track? Is there any scientific truth and operational value supporting the use of remote viewing? Let's find out as we decode Project Stargate. Cognitrons in the Matrix. The program known today as Stargate was the last incarnation of a series of remote viewing programs conducted by the CIA and the DIA between 1970 and 1995. I remember 1995. See, I really working on this in 1995. I was eight years old. What were you doing? <laughs> Come on. The first efforts are maybe they work. So maybe why did they give up? The first efforts in the field were initiated by the CIA in reaction to the concern that Soviet secret services may be conducting psychotronic research. The CIA concluded that by 1970, the Soviets were spending 60 million rubles per year on psychic phenomena, with the budget predicted to increase fivefold by 1975. This sounds like exactly the sort of thing. If I'm running the Soviet Union, I'm like, yeah, 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 let's just plant some information about some crazy projects. What are you working on? Yeah, remote viewing. What are you working on? Time travel. What are you working on? Nuclear fusion. <laughs> like, <laughs> nuclear fusion is definitely like, not in there, but like, this is back in the day. They'd just be like, yeah, just, just say we're working on these crazy things, just so that the CIA and the DIA would just go waste tons of money on them, even though we're doing no such thing. The Cold War was essentially an appendage measuring duel in which the two opposing blocs constantly tried to outdo each other at the expense of humankind. Thus, in 1970, the CIA secured funding for its first research program in this field called Scanate. It took two years, however, before research on remote viewing was initiated at the Stanford Research Institute, or SRI, in Menlo Park, California. Let us take a moment to clarify exactly what remote viewing is and how it worked. The journal Strategic Analysis describes it as the ability of human beings to perceive information and imagery of remote geographical targets. Well, I can do that. I can perceive imagery of remote geographical targets. I'm thinking of Osama bin Laden's face right now. I'm perceiving that foreign, like, remote target. So, but that's obviously not what we're going after here, is it? Visibility was conducted by applying three main techniques. First, Coordinate Remote Viewing, or CRV. This was the original method developed by SRI in Menlo Park. Remote viewers were asked to describe, write down, or sketch out what they could see or perceive at specific geographic coordinates. Then we have Extended Remote Viewing, or ERV. This method was based on relaxation and meditation, allowing viewers to tap into psychic perception without the need of coordinates. At a later stage, the program introduced Written Remote Viewing, or WRV, a technique similar to automatic writing used by spiritual mediums. Oh my god, like my mother-in-law, got she's she believes in all this weird shit. And I don't know, I, I find it nonsense, but I just keep my mouth shut. <laughs> but she's like, yeah, I went to this person and they do this automatic writing where they just let the spirits take over them, and I'm like, mm, don't say anything. 
But I'm just like, it's such a scam. You're just getting scammed. Because this person doesn't believe they're actually doing it. If they did believe they were actually doing it, they'd be shit at it. Because they wouldn't be playing all the clever games that the people who are conning you do to make you believe that they actually know something. It's, it's sad. Stop throwing away your money. I've searched the CIA archives for descriptions of how these techniques could work out and found a detailed set of instructions for CRV, the technique based on coordinates. The document, dated July 1988, describes CRV as a technique that can be taught to anyone, even without innate physical psychic abilities, with a six-stage training program. The unnamed author admits that not all about the CRV process is clear. He says, many theory questions remain unanswered, but enthusiastically concludes that the fact is, the stuff works. Well, let's see how the stuff works then. Our unconscious mind supposedly contains a structure known as matrix, described as all-knowing and omnipotent. The matrix contains elements called patterns, also referred to as gestalts or thought balls. Where do you get this information from? We know what's it. I mean, the brain's enormously complex and we still don't understand it. But how about, how about we just assume that something's not there until we can prove that it is? Or like have any evidence at all that it is rather than just be like oh, maybe there's some thought balls in there <laughs> it's ridiculous each pattern radiates its own energy in the form of a signal line which causes cognitrons to resonate but now i'm thinking well what is a cognitron i found references to this concept in a 1975 issue in the journal biological cybernetics as well as a 1964 report by the u.s defense technical information center in both cases cognitrons are defined as nets of artificial neurons in the context of a of research on artificial intelligence well those sound real that sounds like actual cybernetic science. The unnamed CIA author, however, seems to ignore this fact and assume that there are actual neural networks within our minds, more precisely inside the autonomic nervous system. When a signal line has a cognition, it resonates, thus producing perceptual feedback. So, during a CRV session, a monitor will read a set of coordinates to the remote viewer. These coordinates will evoke, quote, the signal line corresponding to the pattern within the matrix at that set of coordinates. The signal line then hits the cognitron, generating, and I quote again, impressions or perceptions of the target area keyed to the specific issues he is concerned with, for example, structural terrain, emotions, etc. It sounds like some guy read some science from a journal that he didn't really understand and was like, yeah, okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. Let's put this into practice for psychics <laughs> and sell it to the CIA for a hundred mil. Governments have too much money. The explanation, therefore, implies that the matrix within our subconscious already contains all the information and knowledge available in the entire universe. It doesn't. The main purpose of the training program is to unlock the free flow of information as it leaves the unconscious mind and crosses the border or Lyman with the conscious mind. This information travels via conduits or channels which are normally blocked by inhibitors or physical inclemencies, for example sickness, fatigue, hunger or even the simple act of moving about. Tell you what, if I'm not sick, I'm not hungry, I'm not tired and I'm sitting still, it's not like oh suddenly I know next week's lottery numbers, suddenly I understand you know, all of the complex science. It's like, no, my brain is far too small for that. I don't have that information locked in my brain. Have you seen how tiny it is? Come on. The author advises that for the viewer to be effective, these inclemencies should be removed. Thus, the viewers should not, well, view when they are sick, fatigued, hungry, or in motion. Bring me another snack, CIA man. <laughs> I'd like a bagel. Now, before I completely fry, I'd love a bagel. For some reason, that's the first thing that came to my mind. I could smash a delicious bagel right now. With some salmon, some cream cheese, a little pepper on top. Hey, 
I'm going to order, order bagels for lunch. Now, before I completely fry the cognitrons of Simon and our esteemed viewers, right, of the right kinds, let me return to historical facts. Thank you. The research kicked off in 1972 at SRI and was led by physicist and parapsychologist Russell Targ, as well as engineer and parapsychologist Harold Puthoff. The latter had previously worked with the NSA and was alleged to have ties with Scientology. Okay. Targ and Puthoff recruited promising agents among gifted individuals such as artist and psychic Ingo Swan. The remote viewing capabilities of the subjects were tested to ensure that they achieved a minimum accuracy rate of 65% find out later about actual success rates. In parallel to the CIA-sponsored SRI research, the DIA, Army Intelligence, launched their own psychic program under the supervision of the Army Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence Systems Exploitation Detachment. Oh my god. What's your... Hi, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Simon. I'm the Army Chief of Staff for Intelligence Systems Exploitation Detachment. <laughs> That's a hell of a job title, isn't it? What was it? Army Vice Assistants. You just keep adding things in there. The Army Initiative dubbed Gondola Wish was launched in 1977 and was focused on evaluating how Cold War adversaries may potentially be using remote viewing. In 1978, Gondola Wish became Grill Flame, an operational collection effort. In, order, in other words, using psychic abilities to gather intelligence on the location of enemy installations or the whereabouts of friends and foes alike. Grill Flame was headquartered at buildings 2560 and 2561 at Fort Meade, Maryland, described by Army.mil as the nation's premier platform for intelligence, information, and cyber operations. Isn't that there's that fascinating thing going on right now where is it Mali keeps getting all the mail for like the military because their domain extension instead of being dot mil for the military is dot mul like dot ml without the i which you could think also could be for military right? And so people are sending like classified documents like you know John at army dot mil except it's going to John at army dot mul and it's getting sent to like the the generic inbox for the entire of Mali. <laughs> And I don't think of Mali and America are friends. I don't know anything about Mali. Is it Mali? Wait, isn't that the capital of the Maldives? There's some country with the domain extension .ml. And this whole thing's going on with them. .ml. Let's look it up real quick. Oh, it is Mali. What's the capital of Maldives? Oh, Malay. <laughs> with an E on the end. My bad. Anyway, it was described by Army.mil as the nation's premier platform for intelligence, information, and cyber operations. Grillflame was also known. Why is everything in this episode is making me hungry today? Grillflame, come on now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have steak for dinner. Was also internally known as Detachment G of INSCOM, the U.S. Army Intelligence and Security Command. It was manned by soldiers and a few civilians believed to be gifted with natural psychic abilities. Then. In early 1979, the SRI program was integrated into Grillflame. Four years later, the naming department at DIA decided it was time for a change in the program that's renamed as INSCOM Center Lane Project, or ICLP. Harold Puthoff, one of the initial researchers at Stanford Research Institute, still called the shots. He and his recruit Ingo Swan devised a training program which, in theory, could allow even non-gifted individuals to become proficient remote viewers. ICLP was a highly classified program, but an internal leak allowed journalist Jack Anderson to first report about it in April 1994. I hope the title was CIA wasting tons of money. <laughs> in the same year, perhaps as a response to public scrutiny, the Army Research Institute, or ARI, commissions the National Research Council of the National Academy of Sciences to assess the effectiveness of remote viewing practices as well as the results of research trials conducted by the SRI. The review panel was led by David A. Goslin. 
Executive Director of the Commission on Behavioral and Social Sciences in Education. Gosselin and colleagues published their report titled Enhancing Human Performance, Issues, Theories and Techniques in 1988. So what was the verdict of the ARI? In short, they found little to no support for the usefulness of remote viewing. Boom. There you go. Case closed. Right? I'd hope so. But we're only about a third of the way through the episode, so I'm guessing the answer is oh, not quite. Thanks, boy. You'd have thought so. Despite the damning reports, research and operational activities under the ICLP umbrella continued throughout the 1980s and 1990s. This happened largely thanks to the support of Democratic Senators Claiborne Pell and Charles Rose. Pell in particular was known for his interest in the paranormal and both were convinced of Centrelane's effectiveness. Well, how about instead of letting the politicians decide whether something's effective or not, we let the scientists at the Research Institute decide whether something's effective. That would make a lot more sense, wouldn't it? But here we are. Nonetheless, in 1985, centralized army funding was withdrawn, but the DIA's Scientific and Technical Intelligence Directorate found some spare cash under the couch and were happy to pay the bills. They slapped another label on the program, Sunstreak. Why so many name changes and continued to flare up Cognitrons until, 1980, until 1991? That's when the initiative received its most iconic moniker, Stargate, and was contracted to Science Applications International Corporations, or SAIC. According to their own corporate website, SAIC is a premier Fortune 500 technology integrator driving our nation's digital transformation. <laughs> All I heard there is blah 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 blah, corporate speak, blah 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 blah, digital integration, blah blah. <laughs> Our robust portfolio of offerings, offerings across the defense space and civilian and intelligence markets include secure, high-end solutions in engineering, IT modernization, and, mis and mission solutions. I, you, I don't know what you do. There's three lines there, and I'm like, you what? <laughs> Is that the point? Their list of clients includes the Department of Defense, the U.S. intelligence community, other federal civilian agencies, health services, and the U.S. Space Force. The work conducted by SAIC was overseen by parapsychologist Edwin C. May, who acted both as principal investigator and judge for the remote viewing experiments under Stargate. Well, how about the guys running it? We don't let him judge whether they're successful. How about we have an outside body decide that? Maybe that would be good, especially with something as absolutely ludicrous as this, which the government is spending hundreds of millions of dollars on. WTF? In other words, May was in charge of designing and conducting trials as well as assessing the validity and the robustness of the results. In itself, a methodological flaw. Yeah, no shit. By the early 1990s, the program was afflicted by poor morale, bickering at the top levels, and poor performance. In 1995, the Defense Appropriations Bill decreed for Stargate to be handed over to the CIA, where it had all started. As soon as this hot potato landed in the CIA's lap, the agency contracted the the, the agency contracted the American Institutes for Research, or AIR, to conduct a, a retrospective assessment on the effectiveness of Stargate remote viewers. More in detail, they were to evaluate the success rates of the trials conducted by Edwin May at SAIC. The trials which are, you know, there's clear methodological flaws there. So, I wouldn't rely on this, those results too heavily. Air asked two academics to prepare two independent points of view. They were Dr. Jessica Utz, Professor of Statistics at the University of California, Davis, and Dr. Raymond Hyman, a Professor of Psychology at the University of Oregon. Um, yes, and that's great, but if they're working with flawed data, they're working with flawed data. Like, and the data doesn't seem to be methodologically sound. Methodologically? Methodotic? Methodot? Methodot? Oh, who cares? Their evaluations were 
were, I must say, rather surprising and diametrically opposed. We will explore them in detail in the next section. For the moment, I will just report that the final recommendation by air was to shut down the Stargate and throw away the key. Thus, at the end of 1995, a 25-year effort to use remote viewing for intelligence gathering work was terminated. As mentioned earlier, the overall budget of Stargate and its predecessors had, tot had totaled $22 million. As of 1995 value adjusted for inflation, that's more than $44 million in today's value. Ah, oh, okay. An expense of roughly $1.76 million per each year of the program. Which, uh, now it doesn't sound so bad. I thought that was like 1980s dollars, the $22 million or whatever. But it's $1995, which apparently has only doubled. Only lost half its value. Which is still pretty crazy, right? That shit is half as expensive as it was in 1999. Or twice as expensive because of inflation. Inflation sucks. Sure, those are drops in an ocean that's worth $1.77 trillion dollars that is the department of defense's annual budget that is mental that's basically 10 times the entire net worth of the richest person in the world every year but one wonders if that budget could have been more wisely spent elsewhere. For example, according to today's Military.com, the U.S. Armed Forces Tuition Assistance Program pays for up to 100% of the cost of tuition or expenses, up to a maximum of $250 per credit and a personal maximum of $4,500 per fiscal year per student. Yes, wait, the, aren't the military only pays for $4,500 of your student fees? And then you have to go serve in the military. Jesus Christ, that's not a good deal. Just get a job. You can make $4,500 a year. Just working weekends! Jesus! Assuming a four-year college course, Stargate funds could have supported 2,444 service personnel in studying actual science rather than cleaning conduits linked to mat the Matrix and Cognitron. Look, don't get me wrong, Arnaldo, I completely agree with you. I think it's a huge-ass waste of money. But also, it doesn't seem like getting the military to pay for students is a particularly good deal. <laughs> They say, am I reading that right? Pay for up to 100% of the cost of tuition or expenses, up to a maximum of 250 per credit and a personal maximum of 4500 per fiscal year per student. Yeah, like what? Pay up to 100% of the cost of tuition or expenses. What university are you going to where it only costs you $4,500 a year? It cost me more. Ah, it actually probably cost me about exactly $4,500 a year. But that was just for tuition. And then the next year, it tripled, and I think it's even more expensive now. So, and I know America's a lot more expensive than the UK, so what is that going to cover? It's not very generous, Army. And then it's like, oh yeah, you're going to go off and like, fight terrorism or whatever. It's like, that's kind of a, <laughs> doesn't sound like a great deal. I apologize for these personal considerations, but I suspect watchers of the channel might agree with me, no doubt. Instead, Stargate and its predecessors only employed a total of 40 employees, of which some 23 were remote viewers. This leads me to the first of two elephants in the room staring at me from opposite corners. The first, the first pachyderm. Arnado, what is that word? Look up, pachyderm. I'm adding this to my... Oh, okay, that is the, like, is it the genus or, like, the elephants belong to? Pachyderms. New word to me today. Uh, I'm going to use that. It's like, oh, yeah, those elephants, pachyderms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so smart. What did these remote viewers achieve in terms of intelligence collection? I see a crane. As I mentioned earlier, the American Institutes of Research produced an extensive report on the effectiveness of viewers in the testing environment, but assessing the accuracy of their vision in an operational setting is far more difficult for two main reasons. First, these viewers were asked to participate in operations whose details are largely classified. Sure, the CIA released some 12 million pages worth of documents following an FOIA request. Simon, 
I admit I didn't have the time nor patience to trawl through them all. No one's baby is 12 million pages. That is an in how big it that that's an insane that's that's got to be like a warehouse right a warehouse full of paper 12 million pages though i examine some of the most famous assignments and even in those cases large portions of the files have been redacted so there's people at the cia just going through with pen and crossing out 12 million pages of documents because someone had a uh is it how do you pronounce that foa foi foia request Christ. And even in those cases, large portions have been redacted. Second, the details about certain assignments were publicly disclosed after the closure of Stargate. But in those cases, the narrative of events was owned by members or proponents of the program who had, who had a vested interest in portraying the remote viewing experiences as successes. Reputable news outlets picked up on those stories, sometimes muddy, muddling important details. So let's kick off with some apparent successes reported by Russell Targ and Harold Puthoff themselves. As a reminder, these two parapsychologists had been the lead investigators at Stanford Research Institute during the early CIA program ScanAid. In the first half of the 1970s, remote viewers working for Russell and Targ were apparently able to cor correctly describe three top-secret installations after their monitors had provided them with a set of coordinates. On the first occasion, two psychics gave detailed accounts of an underground secret facility in West Virginia, even naming code words and personnel active at the site. This was I'd like to know what the explanation for this is, because it's obviously not psychics. This was the secret government bunker under the Greenbrier Resort, designed as an emergency hideout for Congress in case of a nuclear attack. The existence of Greenbrier Bunker was revealed only in 1992. Russell and Targ also alleged that two of the psychics were also able to identify a similar installation on the Ural mountain range, a bunker to be used by the Soviet government, of course. According to Potov and Targ, quote, The two reports for the West Virginia site and the report for the Ural site were verified by personnel and the sponsor organization being substantially correct. In 1974, a ScanA viewer provided a description of a Soviet airfield which included a vision of a large gantry crane. The site turned out to be the nuclear testing area of Semipalatinsk. However, the shadow of doubt was cast on these apparent successes. The vision of the Greenbrier Bunker was suspected of being the result of an internal leak, and the Semipalatinsk report was severely criticized by a CIA analyst saying, The remote viewing of the site by subject S1 proved to be unsuccessful. The only positive evidence of the rail-mounted gantry crane was far outweighed by the large amount of negative evidence noted in the body of this analysis. The quote ends, based on later analysis of several remote viewing reports, it appears that the psychics may have been influenced by the leading questions posed by their monitors, as well as by their own operational knowledge of the matter at hand. In other words, if you're an army veteran with good knowledge of Soviet military installations and you're sitting opposite a monitor who's asking strongly suggestive questions, you're likely to get at least one detail right, even if you don't possess paranormal activities. Yeah, okay, there we go. Simple. Leading questions. Done. Boom. Not real. More hits and misses. Allow me to return to our intro to assess the accuracy of remote viewing operative. To recap, US General Dozier had been held prisoner by the Italian Red Brigades, while psychic Joe McGonagall had allegedly located the site of his captivity. In later accounts of the event, McGonagall stated that he had identified the northern Italian city of Padua as the location of the general. His reports were forwarded to Italian authorities on January the 20th and 26th, 1982. On January the 28th, a special operations squad of the Italian police burst into an apartment in Padua and beat the living crap out of the terrorist cell rescuing Dozier just when he was about to be executed. <laughs> okay! I get the feeling the way Arnaldo says in later recounts of the event is going to be like, yeah, but that's not actually what happened. The only reported victim of the raid was the terrorist's house cat. His name has not been recorded, but given his owner's political inclinations, I'm going to guess that it was Chairman Meow. Ah, but a boom. <laughs> So what happens at the Italian's 
followed McGonagall's visions. It turns out that Italian police had been flooded with tip-offs by local psychics and so decided to ignore the American viewer. They simply had done their job busting the Red Brigade support network and offering lenient sentences in exchange for information. Nonetheless, one might argue that McGonagall had been proven right, but not so fast, I wouldn't argue that. Oh wait, well he was in the right place, wasn't he? Okay, I see, I see. A CIA file on the case states that run-of-the-mill analysts, based on their knowledge of the Red Brigade's modus operandi, had already ventured that Dozier may be held in a city one and a half hours drive from Verona, the place of the kidnapping, and the city of Padua fit the bill. After Dozier returned to safety in the US, a meeting was arranged between him and McGonagall to ascertain whether the psychic's visions had been accurate. The minutes of their encounter have been declassified by the CIA, but the General's reaction has been redacted. So we'll never know if his comment was astonishing, your cognitions are truly connected to the Matrix, or you stupid fool, while you were meditating in Maryland, I was kept in chains for 42 days. Another case which made it to the headlines was the manhunt for Charles Frank Jordan. And for the next section, I must thank author Joe Nickel, who wrote a comprehensive analysis of the event for Skeptical Inquirer in 2001. Have I never heard of Skeptical Inquirer? That sounds like, honestly, right up my street. The only reason this show isn't called, like, Skeptical Looks Into Stuff is because I find, and I had a long debate with a guy I work with, um, like a consultant, like he gives me some advice about YouTube and stuff. I had a long debate about whether we should call this something to do with the word skeptical, and he was pushing it hard. But I was like, no, 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 no. It's a negative word. People have a negative association with it, and so he never called it skeptical, even though that's what this show is. But by calling it decoding the unknown, hopefully we get some people listening who are like into this stuff, and then hopefully I can disabuse them of that foolish notion. <laughs> So, back in 1989, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, sought the help of Project Sunstreak, as it was known back then, to locate Charles Jordan. This customs agent with the DEA had been taking bribes by drug runners. Once he'd learned he was being investigated, Jordan Fred fled, evading law enforcement and America's Most Wanted for a good two years. I feel like that's real risky. Like, if you work for the DIA, DEA and you're taking bribes, you're going to end up in, like, scary prison with all of the gangs and gang members that you put in prison. And they're going to be like, well, what did you do? Oh, went to the DEA, took bribes. And then it's going to be like, well, <laughs> you're going to be murdered before breakfast. Jesus. The fugitive was eventually arrested in Wyoming, and it appears that a Sunstreak operative was instrumental in securing Jordan's capture, at least according to a version reported by the Washington Post in December, on December the 30th, 1996. A November 1998 BBC documentary also covered this case, stating that Jordan was arrested in northwest Wyoming, some hundred miles from a town called Lovell, next to a Native American burial grounds. Another account of the events comes from Dale E. Graff, a former project director with Sunstreak and author of the book Tracks in the Psychic Wilderness. In his work, Graff states that one of the remote viewers, quote, narrowed down Jordan's location to northern Wyoming near a campground. Although our data was not acted upon, the fugitive was captured a few weeks later at a campground in northern Wyoming. This data was totally contrary to the DEA expectations. They believed he was hiding somewhere in the Caribbean region. End quote. In a later work published in 2000, Graff wrote a slightly different version of the psychic's account, stating, He is in Wyoming, near a place that sounds like Lowell. There is an Indian burial place nearby. This sounds like adjusting things after the fact, doesn't it? You might have already noticed some discrepancies in these versions. Yes, they're very different. The Washington Post writes that the psychic was instrumental in capturing Jordan, while Graff Strait states that the Sunstreak report was not acted upon. But there's more. 
The BBC and Dale Graff mentioned Northern Wyoming as the location of the arrest, but in reality, Charles Jordan was eventually caught in Southern Wyoming. Graff also mentions that law enforcement was looking for the corrupt official in the Caribbean, but the truth is that Colorado State Police had already found Jordan's car just outside of Denver some days before his capture. The car was located on an interstate road leading to Wyoming, by the way, which had prompted officers to look in that direction. Okay, so it sounds like, how did they find him? Uh, regular detective work. And one last observation. Graf mentions the town of Lowell and the Indian burial place only two years after these details were included in the BBC documentary. I'll let you ponder on this detail and draw your own conclusions. I won't. I won't. That's where he got those details, wasn't it? Joe Nickel and the Skeptical Inquirer identified the son, allegedly in my opinion, by the way, just throw that in there. <laughs> Joe Nickel and the Skeptical Inquirer identified the Sun Street viewer as Angela Della Fiora, previously a civilian analyst with INSCOM, the Army's Intelligence and Security Command. Della Flora did not follow the standard remote viewing technique codified by Partov and Targ and preferred to rely on spirit communication. She'd fall into a trance during which she channeled one of three entities, George, Dr. Einstein, or Maurice. <laughs> The CIA was paying for this crazy shit. One of the three would take control of a body and reply to the monitor's answers via the technique of automatic writing. Della Fiora previously worked on the search for U.S. Left, uh, Lieutenant Colonel William Higgins kidnapped in Lebanon in February 1988 by a terrorist cell associated with Hezbollah. Della Fiora reported that Higgins was alive and soon to be released. On July 18, 1989, all the terrorists released was a video showing Higgins' death by hanging. Joe Nickel, as you might expect, raised some doubts on Della Flora's revelations via automatic writing. First of all, besides Graf's 2000 book, other publications stated that she had almost guessed the location of Charlie Jordan by writing a word similar to low, low, and lao, like L-O-W, L-O-W-E, and then lao. But all of these accounts were published at least 10 years after Jordan's arrest in Lovell uh, was common knowledge. Wow. Hindsight's 2020, isn't it, guys? Second, Nickel reports how Della Fiora's own colleagues within Sunstreak doubted her abilities and that she, quote, was too often inadvertently coached towards targets by her customers' questions and answers. The conclusion to this rather confusing example is that it's not possible to ascertain whether remote viewers' contributions were actually accurate or useful as tales of their successes are too often either a. circulated years after the events have taken place, b. compiled by individuals with a vested interest in defending the program, and c. not corroborated by primary sources which are often classified or redacted. To evaluate the accuracy and operational effectiveness of remote viewing, it's better to rely on an academic view of a large number of experiments, allowing to establish the presence, or not, of statistical significance. Academia steps in. So, it's time to circle back to the analysis commissioned by the CIA in 1995 and conducted by the American Institute's Research, or AIR. Earlier, I hinted at the fact that AIR had involved two academics in their review, a statistician and a psychologist. What I did not specify is that in their quest for a balanced view, the AIR pitted against each other a believer in paranormal powers against a skeptic. So let's consider the non-skeptical assessment first. This was compiled by Professor of Statistics Dr. Jessica Ratz, published with the title An Assessment of the Evidence for, for Psychic Functioning. This was published on September the 1st, 1995. Dr. Ratz focused on research conducted by the SAIC Laboratory. This was the private firm contracted in 1991 by the DIA. The statistician noted how SAIC performs an investigation on anonymous, anomalous perturbation, or telekinesis, but the bulk of their efforts were directed at anomalous cognition, another term for remote viewing. 
By analyzing test results, Dr. Rutz concluded that the anomalous cognition is, to some extent, possible in the general population. However, certain individuals seem to be more gifted than others. She singled out a subject identified as Viewer 372, who is particularly proficient at describing technical sites. Look, if you've got 372 viewers doing loads of remote viewing, at some point they're going to get it bang on. It's just like, you know, you give enough monkeys typewriters and eventually you're going to get Shakespeare. That's just how maths works. She also concluded that training was nonetheless required for remote viewing to be accurate. She admitted that this technique was, quote, rarely 100% accurate and there is no reliable way to learn what is accurate and what is not. But the same levels of inaccuracy were true for traditional sources used for intelligence gathering. All in all, Dr. Rutz's review is largely positive in her own words to quote, It is clear to this author that anomalous cognition is possible and has been demonstrated. This conclusion is not based on belief, but rather on commonly accepted scientific criteria. The statistical results of the studies examined are far beyond what is expected by chance. Yeah, but you're ignoring, like, the leading questions and all of that malarkey that was going on. As a next step, the statistician recommended not to invest valuable resources in finding proof of remote viewing's effectiveness. She recommended instead to continue research to understand how this capability actually works. So now let's now look at the skeptic response. This was performed by Professor of Psychology Dr. Ray Eyman, published on the 11th of September 1995, with the title Evaluation of Program on Anomalous Mental Phenomenon. Dr. Hyman admitted that the results provided by SAIC and Dr. Ratz's analysis were enticing. However, he also pointed out two methodological flaws. First, all SAIC tests shared the same judge, program lead Edwin C. May. Oh yeah, right, I forgot to mention, like, they're working with data. And my argument uh, would be, and maybe this is what this guy's going to argue as well, is like, the data's flawed. It's not just, you know, you can draw whatever conclusions you want, but if you're not questioning the data, then... That's not great, is it? As I mentioned earlier, May was also the principal investigator, which raises questions as to impartiality of the results' as interpretation. Second, Hyman admitted that statistical results were far beyond what is expected by chance, but this did not prove that remote viewing abilities were responsible. So allow me to clarify this point. If Simon were to plan his next rant or tangent, I may use my alleged anomalous cognition powers to try and guess certain words or phrases he may use. Here I go. Have I told this story before? That was a tangent. It's a tangent and a half, I do apologize. All right, get off your soapbox, fat boy, and get on with the bloody story. Wasps are terrible. I had to remove a nest of wasps from my house. I had to remove, I had to fucking wasps, man. <laughs> fucking wasps. I went on holiday, and both my kids, one kid got stung by a wasp, and the other kid got stung by a bee. And it's all for God's sake. <laughs> fucking wasps, man. <laughs> Now, I may get some of these right by total chance. Above a certain success rate, a statistician may be inclined to conclude that chance does not play a part. But this conclusion in itself does not mean that remote viewing capabilities played a part in defeating chance. It may be that I nailed some or all of these predictions thanks to common sense, my previous knowledge of the topic, or the leading questions posed by a partner, monitor, or client. Dr. Hyman posits that in order to detect the presence of anomalous cognition, a researcher should eliminate all other possibilities, all other influence in factors. Dr. Hyman concluded that he did not believe that, quote, contemporary findings of parapsychology, including those from the SRI-SAIC program, justify concluding that anomalous mental pheno phenomena have been proven. End quote. Now, these could be definitely proven only if the SIAC experiments were to be carried out without influencing factors and with the allocation of independent judges. But even in that case, quote, this does not guarantee the ability would have useful applications. No, but it would, like, that's fine. I don't care about the useful applications. I mean, sure, I do. But I'm way more interested in, like, is this actually possible? Is this actually a thing that people can do? And they haven't even got that far. So, yeah. 
Zoltan proceeded to quote Edwin May himself, who stated to the air that only 20% of intelligence provided by a remote viewer was accurate and actionable. Moreover, it is not possible to discern which 20% of the information is the accurate one. This implies that remote viewing reports need to be complemented by human or signal intelligence gathered through traditional methods. Now, if an intelligence analyst has to invest resources in traditional methods anyhow, why rely on psychics in the first place? After having reviewed the diverging opinions of Dr. Ratz and Dr. Hyatt, the air panel presented their conclusions. They concluded that the SAIC lab research identified a statistically significant anomaly. Yeah, but because of the leading questions and such things. But the nature and source of this anomaly could be could not be ascertained. Moreover, there was no evidence that anomalous cognition could, quote, prove useful in intelligence gathering. Information collected with this method was deemed to be vague and inconsistent. It dispersed with large amounts of irrelevant and erroneous details. And here's the final nail in the coffin to quote, in no case had the information provided ever been used to guide intelligence operations. Thus, remote viewing failed to produce actionable intelligence, end quote. As mentioned earlier, this air report finally convinced the CIA to get rid of Stargate for good as expected, but I find it pleasantly refreshing that the world of academia did not dismiss outright the idea of remote viewing, but took a rigorous scientific and open-minded approach to prove or disprove its existence. Yes, absolutely, I'm down for that. I think it's a bit of a waste of money because I think personally it's nonsense, but the reason I'm able to draw these conclusions about it being nonsense is because academia has been there and done that years ago. So I'm all for this. I think it's brilliant. The conclusion of AIR does not simply brand paranormal capabilities as outright hokum, but focuses instead on observable results and the methodology of the research. To reiterate their verdict, they admitted that further, more rigorous research may be needed, but the operational results obtained thus far did not warrant further investments. I very much hope that a similar combination of rigor, open-mindedness, and respectful dialogue would be applied by both sides to all future discussions between believers and skeptics. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice? Like, I'm always like, I, I, I'm open to having my mind change. I'd always, I'd like to have my mind change. It'd be cool if someone was like, bro, ghosts, real. And I'd be like, show me. And then they show me. I'd be like, god damn, dude, ghosts are real. It's not going to happen, I, I don't think, but... It's interesting, isn't it? I'm open to that. Don't send me emails about your ghost experiences, though. They're not real. A longish outro. The second elephant. Dear Simon, viewers and listeners, I will test your patience for one last section. Earlier on, I mentioned my room was crowded by two elephants, one being the accuracy of remote viewers. The second deals with the events that kicked off the CIA's paranormal projects back in the 1970s. The reports that the Soviets have been investigating the application of psychotronics to intelligence and military work. Is this because it's fake? They just set it up so the American government wastes tons of money on it and it distracts them from doing actual work. I must admit that I'd initially laughed off, laughed off this claim as the result of clever Soviet disinformation. Yeah, me too! Surely a Marxist-Leninist government would not invest in such activities, right? Well, I have been served a hefty slice of humble pie by Serge Kernbach, a researcher at Cybertronica Research, a center of advanced robotics and environmental science and an offshoot of the University of Stuttgart in Germany. The pie came wrapped in Kernbach's paper, Unconventional Research in USSR and Russia, which provides an overview of paranormal activities actually conducted and funded by the Soviet Union. Holy shit, okay? I really was like, it's disinformation, it's disinformation, no shot. And here we are. It appears that the Soviet government was prompted to fund paranormal research in the 1950s and 60s following the acquisition of Anurnaby archives during World War II. The Anurnaby was an organization within the SS initially tasked with researching the origins of the Aryan race, but it later evolved into other sinister endeavors such as performing medical experiments without anesthesia or allegedly delving into occult research. So there you go, we managed to go through more than 5,000 words without mentioning the Nazis, but here they are. 
popping up at the end. Yeah, we wouldn't be decoding the unknown without <laughs> Nazis and experiments and horrible things. Kernbach's paper casts more doubt on this origin story, as it seems that Soviet leaders were interested in unconventional research since the 1920s. Regardless, in the 1950s and 60s, this research received a considerable impetus focusing on three branches. First, parapsychological experiments in the field of remote viewing. Second, the influence of electromagnetic fields on biological subjects. Third, the possibility of physical manipulation with biological radiation, which involved both telekinesis and telepathy. Bi what are you doing? I'm a telekinesis person. Biological radiation. Oh, I'm just thinking really hard about moving that. Nonsense. The latter research was led by Professor S.Y. Turlegin, who interestingly concluded that his experiments, quote, do not leave us in doubt about the presence of radiation emanating from the human body. Well, radiation emits, emanates from everything, Professor. In general, all fields must have been considered promising enough. In 1973, the secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, P.N. Demichev, established a special commission to investigate psychic phenomena. The commission's conclusion was, quote, we were able to articulate and to defend a principal point. The phenomenon exists. The communication channel is unknown, the affecting channel is unknown. In other words, we believe that psychic phenomena exist, we just don't know how. I'll not go into the details of the Soviet research in this field, nor attempt to decode it, a task we might find ourselves doing in a future episode. I just wanted to point out a curious occurrence noted by Kernbach. The author of the paper states that Soviet Minister of Defense R.J. Malinovsky in 1960 received reports documenting U.S. attempts to weaponize telepathy. These publications appeared to be unreliable and probably fake. However, they may have contributed to provide additional momentum to Soviet research, which in turn inspired, inspired the Americans to do the same, and so on. It's just a, a building circle of nonsense. As Kernbach states, it is likely that both countries have used each other in the arguments in favor of such studies and the struggle for funding, which depicts an interesting scenario, a psychic arms race, in which organizations on opposite sides of the Iron Curtain used alleged evidence of the enemy's achievements to justify their very existence and rake in that taxpayer money. Yes, that's where we end today's episode. Thank you so much for being here. If you enjoy the show, please do leave it a review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, or if you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.